I'm Amanda Olberg, Managing Editor of Education Next. We invite you to join this week's Education Next podcast, available online Wednesday morning each week at educationnext.org. The EdTech industry in the United States is booming. With companies offering new software tools that promise to do everything from monitoring students' progress to provided blended learning opportunities to supplying entire curricula, the opportunities for teachers and students seem endless. Yet the new environment also presents big challenges for district administrators who are charged with sorting through competing claims in a crowded marketplace to choose the right products for their students. As my guest today writes, with hundreds if not thousands of students affected by a single purchasing decision, the stakes couldn't be higher. I'm Marty West, editor of Education Next, and I'm joined this week by Rob Waldron, CEO of Curriculum Associates, an EdTech publishing company based in North Billerica, Massachusetts. Rob is the author of the new article, How to Avoid Getting Ripped Off by EdTech Vendors, that will appear in the winter 2018 issue of the journal and is available now at educationnext.org. Rob, welcome to the EdNext podcast. Thanks, Marty. I appreciate being here. So it's rare to see a business in any industry offering advice to potential customers about how to avoid being ripped off. What led you to write this article, and why is it needed in the first place? Well, I, I, there are two reasons. One is anytime someone's selling something, every once in a while you'll find some folks, it doesn't happen too often, but find some folks who are just trying to get the money and not do what's best. So we see that occasionally. But also I think it's hard to understand how to buy products that you maybe aren't familiar with purchasing before. It's not like everyone goes around and buys enterprise software for a living and you're doing it one or two or three times uh, every three or four years. So uh, just I thought I would write down some shared experience. Of course, we're involved in these purchases thousands of times, and we're dealing with schools who might be only doing it a few times. And I just wanted to share some observations I've had along the way. Now, states and school districts... Ed tech may be a new thing, but they obviously have lots of experience procuring textbooks and other instructional materials. How's ed tech different, and what new challenges does it present? Right. Well, I think there are a couple things that are different. So, one, yes, they've been procuring things all the time. They're very sophisticated about that in most places. Uh, they've actually procured software for a long time. Um, so they're familiar with that, too. But I think what's a little bit different now is software as a service. So you're buying annual subscriptions to software, and that's a, that's a bit of a different trend. So you're going to get updates along the way. You're uh, going to need different levels of service. The software's in the cloud rather than sitting on a school server. So some of those things have changed just over the last couple of years. And in an ideal world, I guess, EdTech purchases would be based on evidence that the product in question is effective and ideally cost-effective in improving student outcomes. What role do you see evidence playing in the adoption process right now? Well, it's, it's increasingly so. I think one of the great things about this software-as-a-service model is that uh, you can throw us out in any given year. You're not stuck with some five- or seven-year purchase long contract. You can get out of it uh, in any given time. And, and that forces companies like ours to have to deliver. Every year you get to look at usage. They get to see usage. We get to see usage. They get to see gains. We get to see gains. Uh, it's going to force quality to win, and I think this is a big change. Um, and the ability for third parties to look at the efficacy of these products is getting a little bit better. 
just because we can share meaningful data with those folks as well, the the outside industry folks like Ed reports and others who can see the trends that are happening here and the results. But the best thing in the world is is whether customers renew. They they can if they can throw you out every year, they're going to know what they want and what they don't want, what's working, what's not working. So it's in addition to the to the research which has to happen. I think the 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 educators can speak and walk more than ever before. So in answering that question, you emphasize more the evidence that districts get from their own experience using a product and learning from that over the over time rather than, say, third-party research from the What Works Clearinghouse or some other outlet that uh, is validating a product for its efficacy you know, before the adoption stage? Well, I think both are important, right? You want to be able to look at those different folks, just make sure they're doing it right, and and um, and use those resources as well as the resources of just what's happening in your own experience. I think one of the things to be a little bit careful with is that um, in SaaS-based uh, products, software as a service-based products, they're in the cloud. There are updates happening all the time, and the software is constantly improving. So one of the things you'll, you might, when you do a study on a textbook, that textbook is going to be the same over the life of the five years. When you're doing a study on software, you may be doing seeing a study that we've had 60 or 70 new versions of the software since that time. So it's, it, it almost evolves at a greater pace than the research can keep up with it. So we're trying to do both. We're trying to have the gold standard studies that where you have control groups, non-control groups, look what happens over time, uh, but also show the latest that's happening with all the updates that happen. And I think that's an important thing for the industry uh, because if we're not the only ones to do this, but SaaS-based products are constantly evolving based on user feedback. So a, a thing you might have had a concern with a year ago gets fixed. Um, and it's important to look at that the rate of change that these products have. I always ask uh, uh, educators to not only judge us by what we have today, which has turned out great for us but because we created a product that they like, but are we the right people to go on this journey with, right? Because if I'm doing 50 to 60 updates a year, if you're going to own this, uh, for five years, you you could be getting uh, 250 updates. Right? So, are, are these the people that you want helping you to update? Yeah, the pace with which innovation is occurring within a given product really does present a challenge for this old model of just say validating a product and you know considering that to be a settled question for an extended period of time. Right, so, but again, I I think it's important that both are necessary. Like, look, if you can't make that standard, if you can't make that third-party validation standard to begin with, you know, we, there, we should investigate that. There might be a reason, but you know, beware a little bit. It doesn't mean that it's necessarily always true, but one of the things I find sometimes with the third-party groups is they, they themselves are, have built their practices around evaluating texts and not ed tech, and they don't always uh, know how to evaluate it. But um, at the same time, you should be able to meet such a research standard or have third-party validated research that you've done uh, and uh, still think about ways that you can adapt and change over time. So let's get into some of the advice you offer to district administrators and some of the ones that I found most striking. You start by telling them to check the fridge before they go shopping. We all know that's good advice when going to the grocery store, but what does it mean in this context? Well, I've seen people buying a lot of products, and I guess the thing that I've seen the most, and I can understand why it happens, it probably happens in my own home where you don't actually know what's in the fridge, which is why we use that analogy, is people don't actually know what they own. 
And the reason for that is that a principal may have used Title I money to buy something. A teacher may have used their own money to buy something. A district may have purchased something. Then districts, unfortunately, have turnover. The average superintendent tenure in the United States is 23 months. So if their chief of staff of the superintendent turned over, we may not actually know that they own the thing. And the simple fact of doing an audit of what, what's going on in the district, what do we own, not own, uh, every single time I found illuminating. I was in a district uh, last year where the superintendent told me there were three major programs they used. Uh, I went to a principal to meet with the principal about what that principal used. He gave me five, and none of them were part of the three. Uh, I went to the procurement office and found that there were 47 different software licenses that were using. So that happens all the time. It's very complicated in districts. There are years of things. There may be old licenses you're still paying for, update fees, and so forth. So we found an enormous amount of savings could be had by uh, by doing a full review and uh, what I you know cleaning the closet, cleaning the refrigerator, whatever analogy you want to use. You also counsel districts to buy off the rack, as you say, rather than demanding personalization. I would have assumed that for a software company like yours, upselling districts on personalization is a real opportunity to increase the revenue you're getting. Why is it good advice for districts to avoid that upsell? Well, I find that the the price and the outcome and benefits to kids don't match. So, Look, software people are expensive. In the city I, I work in, there are 20,000 open developers positions in the city of Boston itself. That obviously increases wages and so forth. Those are expensive folks. When you get to a district and you look at what they're trying to customize for the district, I, I understand that it might be a little bit better if you did, but you're talking about taking price points from somewhere between 6 and $20 a student per year, 20 to $30 per student year, depending how, how, what the software is doing and so forth, to $60, $80, 70 a kid. And, and I just don't see how it's justified uh, that a child who is an emerging reading, reader and behind has particular sets of issues and if the software is adaptive, it should be able to handle that child in different circumstances. The standards themselves are known uh, even though they're changing uh, with the, the kickback of the Common Core, they're still known and understood. I just, I, I haven't seen a case where someone wanted to customize where you looked at what it would cost in order to create that customization and the value to student achievement, save time for teachers, whatever it is. Um, it just doesn't seem to make sense to me. And one of the things about uh, in a SaaS-based product is we, we actually have one code base, so it's a massive uh, amount of code. Um, we obviously have state-based and other uh, uh, focused parts of that code, but it's one code-based and the, the quality of that code to make sure that it doesn't have latency that can be used in uh, bandwidth situations that are low, uh, that it's completely secure, all these things. It's just made better and better by, you know, we, we work with 13% uh, percent of the K-8 children in the United States. That'll be 20% of the K-8 children in the United States in the next couple of years. Um, when, you, when you're working with that many kids and, and it's one code base, it's just going to outperform uh, something that you start to customize where people are doing off the size of their desk. And I, I think you'll have better efficacy, better quality, and a much, much lower cost. And schools don't have enough money um, to, to pay these things. One, one thing to keep in mind about the kind of chart, uh, the, the prices that people pay in EdTech, um, you know, if I bought Microsoft Outlook 
for uh, sorry Microsoft Office so that Excel Word uh, my email for every employee you know and some negotiated be two hundred to two hundred fifty dollars a year for that license and there's no content inside it if I want to put a spreadsheet I got to put in the numbers if I want to put pros in my Word document I got to put in the numbers here we're creating hundreds of hours of content and all this software for ten percent of the price. Um, we have to be very specific about figuring out ways to do that efficiently, um, and customization is not that helpful to creating student achievement, I've found. I understand that politically it feels better. I understand it feels better when you're telling the software company the rules, but uh, there's not a lot of money out there uh, to pay for that level of customization, and uh, I see a lot of money being wasted. So going back a little bit to the uh, question of the role of evidence in purchasing decisions, one of the things you recommend that districts do is that they conduct a real pilot, and you pair that with a warning to be aware of the free trial. So what's the difference between a real pilot, as you understand it, and some other trial of a software product? Right. So a free trial would be I give you a password, you play with the software, and you don't... The software has all these things inside that you don't know how to use. The, the way to do a pilot is to say, okay, I'm going to, in our case, I already, I'm going to use data to drive instruction. I'm going to understand where these kids are. I'm going to train uh, a group of teachers or a school or maybe a, a grade and get people involved so that they know what the experience is going to be like um, rather than a couple people, you, you know, spending a few hours on the product with a password. Um, that. That's not that's not a use case. That's not a typical use case to spend a couple hours on it. It's the use case is to see what it's like, what kind of a difference it makes in the classroom. How much time does it save teachers? Do parents get engaged in the data they're seeing? Is instruction changing in the classroom? And then do you get great results? And so to me, uh, those pilots are expensive for us, but um, that's the way to, to see if you're going to uh, be able to use the software effectively, if it fits the needs of the school. And most importantly, then you have some experienced users uh, when you start to use the software uh, for the district or for the full school or whatever. You've, you've actually got people who are, are familiar and spending a couple hours uh, uh, just playing with a password is not going to get you there. Now, you say the pilot is expensive for you, but I imagine there are also some costs for the district as well. Totally, both, on both sides. So one of the things is that's a good process because – you don't have a bunch of things going on randomly. They're taking everyone's time. You're like, well, if we're going to do a pilot, we're going to have to do it a little bit more thoroughly. So we're going to sit down. We're going to talk about what is this product intended to do? What outcome are we looking for? How are we going to judge it? So you plan a little bit better. Then you do the pilot. You review that pilot and then implement after that. And so for us, it slows down sales. It takes longer to get a sale this way. Uh, but when we have that, we're going to have more success uh, over the long term. Now, perhaps the most striking piece of advice you offer is to get a guarantee or walk. Is it truly feasible that districts can demand a money-back guarantee on ed tech purchases? Sure. I, I, uh, we, we do it. We've done it for the past uh, 48 years. The, if, the, if they can't do it, just ask why. Is it, what, if, if I don't like it, I want to give it back. It, that's how it works when I, I buy a shirt. Uh, if it doesn't fit, I get to send it back on Amazon. Um, look, you, we have to deliver for you or you get your money back. And, and I, you, you know, we, we have it when it's a software license. We don't, if someone's used it for three months and then they kick it back, then we're going to charge you the three months worth because you've used the software. 
so that seems fair. But if the balance of the thing is nine months or six months, then you get your money back. Um, uh, look, we, we've got to change the industry to serve the schools. And uh, we as an industry have to be of better service. And uh, when when organizations like ours know they, that they either deliver or they don't have any money, they're going to behave better and give better service. And, and uh, I encourage everybody to do that, particularly on anything of size on a procurement. Just say that we're not – our district policy is you don't give us a money-back guarantee. You can't do business in the district. You'll be surprised how fast everybody kind of comes changing their policies to sit, fit the district if that's what they tell the world they're going to do. I, I encourage all districts to do that. My guest today has been Rob Waldron, CEO of Curriculum Associates. His article on how to avoid getting ripped off by ed tech vendors is available now at educationnext.org. Rob, thanks for being part of the podcast. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Ednext podcast. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or another platform so that you don't miss an episode. And while you're there, please leave us a review. It helps us find more listeners and more listeners to find us.